Welcome to the Common Good Hour, hosted by Drew Reynolds, Roger Zaglupe, and Carrie Rebens. In this podcast, you'll learn about the ways nonprofit and social sector professionals are tackling the big problems of our time so you can improve your practice and advance the common good in your community. Hi, everyone. I am Roger Zaglupe. And I'm Drew Reynolds. Today, we take a step back and talk about mental health, advocacy, and social work from a policy perspective. To do this, we brought two amazing professionals, Kathy Rogers and Valerie Arden. So we'll begin with Valerie. And Valerie is the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers um, in North Carolina. And that's the uh, professional body that represents social workers across the country. And there's chapters in each state. And, um, and she represents North Carolina. So I really love this interview. We had a great chance to talk about legislative priorities that NASW is taking on, uh, particularly around mental health and telemental health. So for those who are in the mental health world and try, now shifting into doing more telehealth, mental health work, you know, what legislation needs to be in place so that you can appropriately bill for hours and that you can really deliver this much needed service over um, a, a remote lens. And, and also her ideas about how that might change um, going forward even after COVID. Uh, wraps up. We also talked about the Raise the Age legislation in North Carolina, which is focusing um, on juvenile justice issues. And then we talked a little bit about Black Lives Matter, social work and policing, and the role of NASW um, in this moment with both macro and direct practice work. So we just, we covered a ton of stuff and I'm just super excited about this episode. We did. And she is such a passionate person. You can really tell that um, not only does social work matter to her, but community wellness matters to her. And the interview was was an amazing interview. We had so much fun. And uh, we, we definitely hope that our listeners um, enjoy it as much as we did. So then uh, after the interview with Valerie, we're going to talk about mental health during COVID-19 with Kathy Rogers. Now, Kathy Rogers is the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Central Carolinas. And I consider Kathy to be a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, We've known each other for a few years, ever since she took over the role as executive director of Mental Health America of Central Carolinas. And since the day she has started, Kathy has definitely made a positive impact in our community and helping our community learn about mental health awareness and mental health education. So during this interview, we talked a lot about the impact of social distancing and how that's impacting individuals' mental wellness. Uh, we also talked about prevention in mental health and what can we as practitioners, as social workers, as um, community leaders, um, as supporters, what can we do to uh, help individuals not only become aware of, of mental wellness, but also um, resources that they can reach out to that will help them during the process. And then we talked about creative responses uh, from mental health organizations due to COVID-19. So again, talked a lot about mental wellness, talked a lot about community need, but then also talked about uh, the responsibilities that we have as supporters and providers to ensure the wellness of of our community. Yeah, you know, Roger, and I think what I love so much about this episode, you know, we've been doing this since the start of COVID. Um, and I felt like the first handful of episodes that we were doing, you know, we were kind of bootstrapping it, you, me and Carrie, as we were trying to figure out how to do this podcast. Um, but now we're launched and we're going and we've got good processes and we're, we're building it out. But also like all these other nonprofits that we were working with, were just like trying to figure out what they were going to do, all these advocacy organizations and schools or whatever. And so now, 
you know, we're having these conversation here around policymaking. And it kind of hit me as we were doing these two episodes, um, just the level of profound change that we're living in right now. Um, when talking to Valerie about some of the big legislative priorities and how really sort of ground shifting they could be in the social work profession and in, uh, and in criminal justice and all that kind of things. And of course, we're living through COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. Um, I just feel like, you know, episodes like these are starting to show what is possible and what new changes might come. Right. And I know you and I had talked about this, um, you know, before we got on the air today about uh, just the impact that COVID-19 has had on our communities. When when we first had this idea of the Common Good Hour, um, we really were still unsure about the trajectory of COVID-19 and the impact it would have on all of us. And here we are um, now, you know, I would say midway through summer and um, we're still trying to figure out what the rest of the year is going to look like and how that's impacting not only mental health, uh, policy, but then also education. And so, um, you know, I really feel strong about the direction we're taking with the podcast. Um, we have a, a lot of uh, great ideas that we're hopeful that listeners will be also interested in. And uh, the last few interviews, all the interviews that we've had have been just just incredible. Absolutely. And so, you know, for um, for those of you who are interested in seeing what next steps lie ahead, what uh, new legislative um, opportunities are out there for social work in the profession um, and for the social sector at large, this is an episode for you. So we're really excited that you'll have a chance to listen to that. So also, as you are listening today, if you get a chance um, right after you're finished or even right now, if you want to pause it and just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just so that you get updates on this podcast, please do rate and review. It's so important for us as we continue to build out and, and support this podcast. Every time that that happens, it makes it easier for us to continue to do this work. Um, and you can always check us out on our website at www.commongooddata.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Common Good Hour. So um, just wanted to take that time to um, get a chance to see if you can follow us on social media and um, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And Drew, you forgot to tell them about Facebook. Y'all do not forget. You can also find us on Facebook. Search for the Common Good Hour page and click when you see Jane Adams with our funky headphones. We'll go ahead and get started with our interview with Valerie Arndt. So we're joined now by Valerie Arndt and the amazing Roger Ciclupe. But first, let's introduce our guest. Valerie is the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers in North Carolina. She leads the association's efforts to advance the profession of social work in North Carolina by advocating for social work issues at the state level. Valerie has her Master of Social Work and Public Policy degrees from the University of Minnesota. Her direct social work experience includes a focus on refugee and immigrant families, early childhood education, women and youth education, affordable housing, and nonprofit management. Valerie, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. Valerie, we're so excited to have you on board. We appreciate your time, and we definitely appreciate all the hard work uh, you are doing out there on behalf of all social workers in leading NASW. So thank you again. So today we're going to talk about NASW as a leader in the social work profession and the critical role NASW plays in advocating for social policy change. First, can you share a little, about, a little bit about NASW's role in advocacy 
and what that work looks like day to day. Sure. And thank you again, uh, Roger and Drew, for having me. So definitely in most states, including North Carolina, the National Association of Social Workers is the only association that advocates and lobbies for the entire profession of social work with the governor, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Public Instruction, which is education in North Carolina, the Department of Public Safety, which is the prison systems, the Department of Insurance, and uh, each of our state legislatures. So in, in conjunction with this advocacy for a social work profession, NASW's mission is to advance sound social policies. So our advocacy work varies day to day. There's no one set advocacy day. So for example, last week, the North Carolina General Assembly wrapped up its short session. It's going into a, a skeleton session and won't ad adjourn until July. But uh, what happened was the General Assembly passed a number of bills in the middle of the night that significantly impact North Carolinians. Some of these are good and some we advocated against some of the language and have asked the governor, asked Governor Cooper to veto. NASW North Carolina has been following some of these bills for the last year and a half, working closely with legislators to make sure language is better, that amendments need to be added or if bills need to be scrapped altogether. Every single week, we also work very closely with our coalition partners, such as the Psychological Association, the Psychiatry Association, our Substance Use Disorder partners, and IDD partners as well. Our voices are much stronger when we work in coalition with these behavioral health associations. Our social policy advocacy includes funding support and the hiring of degreed social workers in systems of care for children, families, and aging adults. We work on underemployment issues as well as unemployment support, um, advocating for a living wage, and of course, health care. NASW North Carolina has advocated for the expansion of Medicaid in North Carolina since day one, which we need now more than ever as we are in the middle of a pandemic and rural hospitals have closed statewide. Examples of our recent advocacy includes our conversations and calls to Governor Cooper and the Department of Health and Human Services all the way back at the end of February for the reimbursement of telebehavioral health services during and, and now after the pandemic. We've been on calls with Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina advocating for telehealth parity. We have succeeded in receiving, uh, which we have succeeded in receiving at least until the end of 2020. This is a huge deal because until the pandemic, telehealth behavioral health services were not reimbursable by insurance companies as well as Medicaid. This keeps both social workers and their clients safe during this time, uh, and, and we really are working hard to make sure this continues after the pandemic so folks can continue to receive those services. Nationally, NASW took the lead in getting the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to reimburse for telephonic services, which is another huge deal since no one can see clients in congregate care settings such as nursing homes. Now social workers and other providers can provide reimbursable services via telephone when this was not possible before the significant advocacy work happened. And then certainly not last, but I'll round out by saying that the NASW North Carolina chapter works very hard to advocate for social workers with regards to clinical licensure, as do all NASW chapters. For example, our work over the last two years saved clinical social work licensure in North Carolina in 2019. 
if we had not worked with our state licensure board, drafted legislation, found sponsors to introduce changes to our Social Work Licensure Act at the legislature, LCSWAs, which is Licensed Clinical Social Work Associates, would not have been able to become fully licensed as of July 1st, 2021, because of an exam use policy by the Association of Social Work Boards. We have an amazing lobbyist. Her name is Kay Castillo. She worked tirelessly at the North Carolina General Assembly for the last 10 months to, well, last year for 10 months to have our bills passed on the very last day of session. It was definitely, um, we, we got it in there in the last minute. And this would not have been possible without a professional association that has the membership support to fully fund a, a full-time lobbyist. You know, Valerie, we're so appreciative of the work again that y'all are that y'all are doing over there in the SWNC. But I'm not sure if social workers understand the capacity of of the work that y'all are doing, especially with COVID nineteen changing the landscape of of telemental uh, medicine and how aggressively and assertively uh, y'all advocated for that to be a reimbursable uh, for licensed clinical social workers all the way up to LCSWAs and the changes in the uh, licensure exam, et cetera. So again, thank you so much for for your hard work. It impacts everybody because that way we can we can do the work we need to do in order to provide support, um, not only for communities, but also in nonprofit sectors. Definitely, yes. So Valerie, I wanted to follow up a little bit on the work you're doing around telemental health, um, particularly in the context of COVID-19 and afterwards, you know, certainly we're in a time uh, nobody asked for, but is certainly creating so many changes in social work practice and particularly in the areas of mental and behavioral health. And so what do you see as a legislation that's critical to, to the social work profession moving forward? And, and how is this process going to change? What, what should we anticipate in the coming years with respect to legislation around telemental health and, and what is NASW's role in that? Sure. So as I mentioned, we are advocating at the state level for the continued reimbursement for telehealth services. And so if the state uh, and health insurance companies do not extend these services, do not extend the reimbursement of these services, do not extend uh, telehealth parity, uh, to their consumers, we will move forward with pursuing uh, legislative changes. So I think that's that's a huge deal. Um, social workers should be communicating with Medicare, Medicaid, and all of their insurance providers that this service is critical and it is working. We heard directly from Blue Cross Blue Shield a couple of weeks ago that no-show rates are decreasing because of the accessibility to these services. So I think folks get it. Um, I think the state gets it. I think insurance companies get it. And we are just working with them to ensure that they will continue these services. So uh, I think North Carolina is on the right track. Um, and I hope other states will be as well. But if other states aren't aren't as forward thinking as as North Carolina, I think other states as well should be pursuing these type of legislative changes that would ensure reimbursement for these critical telehealth behavioral health services. You know, Valerie, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I feel like part of the concern is the what if or what's going to happen after COVID-19 starts winding down. and offices open up and and more uh, access to face-to-face uh, sessions and meetings occur, what's going to happen to 
uh, telemental health. I, I, I feel like it is working and it is offering individuals opportunities to gain access to services where perhaps they may not be, might not have been able to do before. And so I'm really glad to hear that you're mentioning that North Carolina is on the right track and that we have an advocacy um, you know, organization like y'all to make sure that we don't forget that what's working now can still work even when things start winding back down. I think um, in general, social workers enjoy seeing clients in person, hence the, the term social work. And I think clients enjoy seeing uh, their their uh, social workers in person as well. But until uh, COVID-19 goes away, that's not possible. So I think once it does go away, I think to be able to have the option to access both, both in-person visits as well as telebehavioral health um, is critical. Um, we've heard from members um, in the Triangle area, which is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, who provide services, normally only provide services uh, to folks within the, this tri-county area, um, have been able to see folks in very rural areas, which is amazing because there's not a lot of services, unfortunately, in rural areas. So I think the continuation of telehealth would uh, allow folks who didn't was who weren't otherwise able to receive uh, substance use services or mental health services because the 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 most local social worker was two counties away. Um, I think is it just opens a, a, the door to folks being able to access more services, which I think is critical. Alex, I want to um, follow up and ask kind of a question in a different direction. So. Earlier this month, you authored a statement from NASW North Carolina in response to the violent deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Mahmoud Aubrey, and too many other black lives. And in it, you shared that silence is not an option. So could you talk a little bit about that statement and what are ways you think that social, the social work profession um, can continue to grow in anti-racist work? Sure. So I think we all can agree that racism is America's defining social problem. And by not acknowledging and addressing this, social workers are ignoring their ethical obligation. One of the ethical principles of our NASW Code of Ethics is social workers challenge social injustice. And when social workers don't pursue social change on issues such as poverty, employment, discrimination, they are going against their code of ethics. NASW's social policy statement on racism specifically calls upon social workers to continuously acknowledge, recognize, and confront all forms of racism within all of the institutions that are relevant to social work. So that's pretty much every everything, all institutions that touch the lives of our client populations. The social work profession has more boots on the ground than any other helping profession. And as social workers, we are committed more than any other profession to work with vulnerable populations and fight for social justice. But as social workers, we cannot be afraid to talk and learn about race and racism. And in, in my statement, I mentioned that a part of this anti-racist work needs to start with each social worker. We must acknowledge that the social work profession is between 70 and 80 percent white, depending upon what area of practice. And this means that not only do we as a profession have always functioned in a system of white supremacy, but we also largely and collectively benefit from white privilege. And this is something that social workers need to recognize and address. 
So first, individual social workers have the responsibility to recognize that structural racism, what that structural racism plays out in their personal and professional lives. Then we must also use this awareness to eradicate its influence on all aspects of social work practice, inclusive of direct practice, community organizing, supervision, consultation, administration, advocacy, and social and political action. Policy development and implementation, education everywhere, research and evaluation, this anti-racism needs to be in all areas that in which the social work profession uh, works. So I think it's important for social workers to recognize that we all have hidden and implicit biases that without intention or conscious thought affect our understanding, actions, and decision. And of course, through this education and practice, we can all become more aware of what our personal biases are and work to counteract the ones that reinforce white supremacy or cause undue harm to non-white people. So what NASW North Carolina has been doing for a while, but in particular in the last month or so, is really ramp up the conversation around racism, not only within our own social work profession, but how do we address racism within um, uh, within institutions. So, uh, uh, for example, our, our fall conference last year, um, our keynote speaker, um, Derek Anderson, who um, is from uh, the, the Charlotte area, who is the executive director, director of Race Matters for Juvenile Justice, did an opening keynote on race and racism within the social work profession. So the last month, we've continued to have conversations with social workers um, through Zoom, because uh, we can't have it in person yet, on uh, how to address racism within the profession, how to address uh, institutional racism. We have a conversation on Wednesday night on institutional racism within the public uh, uh, education system. We're going to talk about uh, uh, racism within um, um, the criminal justice system as well as healthcare. So I think continuing to have these conversations and outlining uh, how social workers can take action and not be silent is critical to, I think this um, will empower social workers who have felt like uh, they they can no longer be silent, but also haven't been sure of uh, how to move forward um, with anti-racist views is, is critical. One thing that's come up, I think, a lot in conversations in response to uh, the Black Lives Matter protests is conversations around community safety and policing. And some have looked to social workers as perhaps as people who could be stepping in in those situations um, or in other situations where maybe a police officer might not be necessarily the best person to respond in the case of a mental health case or substance use or otherwise. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. What, what do you see as social work's role as a profession? as we start having new conversations about what uh, community safety looks like? Right. Uh, I think um, it's important to note that social workers have worked um, alongside and within police departments for a number of years. So it's important that we continue to have this conversation and shift the conversation to talk about how do we uh, do some police reform? We fully support a plan, and by we, I mean NASW fully supports a plan to reallocate and reinvest public safety budgets to provide behavioral health, social services, crisis intervention, de-escalation training, and other programs. I think that's critical when um, we talk about um, who who responds to 911 calls, who are those first responders, and most of the times 
Um, it, it is the police department or it is the fire department. And a, a lot of those individuals do have crisis intervention training. However, it would be best be served. It, w- it would better serve the community if a social worker was that first responder. So we do support fully support uh, plans to reallo- reallocate and reinvest public safety budgets to support uh, social workers providing behavioral health and become uh, first responders. You know, Valerie, again, I'm so appreciative of the advocacy and, and the awareness and education that y'all are providing um, everyone, because I feel like there are still a lot of people who don't really know what the role of a social worker is in our community. And and I think a big part of, at least for me as a social worker, my responsibility is to educate and help others become aware of the many facets of, you know, of the role of a social worker, that it's, that we're almost like a Swiss army knife, right? We have all these different uh, tools uh, that we can utilize at any given moment in any given situation. And so, um, again, thank you so much for for saying uh, what you just said and for doing what you do. Thank you. I appreciate it, Roger. So on NASW's NC's legislative agenda are both criminal justice reform as well as funding for programs related to the Raise the Age legislation. Can you share briefly NASW's role in this legislation over the past few years and what new legislation should be uh, we should be advocating for? Sure. So NASW North Carolina has advocated for Raise the Age efforts for over a decade. Um, And for folks who are listening and are not aware, North Carolina was the last state in the United States to pass Raise the Age, which is 16 and 17 year old individuals who commit crimes in North Carolina will no longer automatically be charged as an adult in the adult criminal justice system. So we were thrilled when the, when North Carolina passed Raise the Age legislation in 2017 through a phased-in approach. And because of this phased-in approach, money was needed uh, in future budgets to continue the efforts. We continued to lobby legislators to keep their promise to help 16- and 17-year-olds be treated as youth and out of adult courts by funding more positions to serve them, as well as appropriate facilities that would move youth from adult systems to a youth system. So that was something when this legislation was passed, folks were thinking about but hadn't been uh, lined up yet. So what did what what happens to all of these youth that all of a sudden need to be moved um, from serving in an adult prison uh, into a a, a youth treatment facility? So that's where that continued um, uh, advocacy effort to fund that transition comes into. Um, So regarding criminal justice reform, we are deep in a national crisis that unfairly and unjustly treats minorities and persons of color in our criminal justice system. One such example is the school to prison pipeline and the NSW North Carolina Legislative Committee will be studying and working with legislators on introducing a bill to address this in the 2021 legislative session, as well as other reforms needed to create a more equitable justice system for persons of color. You know, earlier you mentioned Race Matters for Juvenile Justice, and I just wanted to give a shout out not only to Race Matters for Juvenile Justice, but also to my friend and colleague, Dr. Susan McCarter, who has been an intricate part of um, dismantling racism and Race Matters for, Ju- for Juvenile Justice. 
Dr. McCarter is amazing. She's also presented for us, and I worked very closely with both her and Derek Anderson, um, UNC Charlotte School of Social Work, as well as Johnson C. Smith University back in 2016 after uh, the police shooting involved shooting of Keith Lamont Scott. Uh, we, as a social work profession, came together to have conversations in the Charlotte area about how do we move forward and work um, towards a more um, anti-racist uh, perspective around policing. So this is not new. We've been having these conversations for years um, with the social work profession and how we can all move forward together to address this institutional racism. So, Valerie, as we get closer to the end of our episode, I have one last question for you, um, focusing a little bit on uh, kind of the social work profession, just as just um, I guess we can say us since all three of us are here are social workers. Um, so NASW at times has been and I'm not talking specifically about North Carolina, but just broadly speaking, um, has been criticized for overemphasizing its focus, legislative and otherwise, on clinical social workers and maybe not um, putting as much weight in other areas, macro practice or otherwise. So how do you think about this critique and divide within um, our profession and how can NASW be a force for members of our profession across all practice areas? Sure. And it's, um, and I've heard that as well. It's not a surprise, but it is funny that you asked that because we've also been accused of not being clinical enough. So it's kind of like you can't, we, we're trying our best to be everything to every part of the social work profession. Um, and I think we're doing a really good job. I think it's easier uh, for folks to see our clinical victories because the majority of these changes are required by legislation most of the time. But as all, we all know, the profession began and is rooted in community organizing and uh, more direct practice rather than clinical. So something that we have been working on and will continue to work on for years, um, a lot of other states have something called title protection, which North Carolina does not have full title protection. We have title protection in the private sector in that if you hire someone and call them a social worker, they have to have a degree in social work. That is not currently the case in the public sector. And that's something that we will continue to work on. We work very closely with the uh, uh, DSS Directors Association. They agree they want social workers in, in roles that are, are deemed. So they want to grade social workers in those social worker roles. And uh, they continue to have problems, especially in the rural areas, with hiring degreed social workers. So we will continue to advocate um, for title protection in that. That let's not call them social workers. Let's call them something else if they do not have a degree in social work. So our advocacy work within the child welfare and adult welfare systems um, continue. And that is, by and large, um, not clinical work. Um, something that we've been working on pretty much forever, but especially in the last three years, is around school social workers. We spent three years advocating with the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction to rehire a school social work consultant consultant at the state level after this position was never filled after uh, a retirement. And we were successful in getting the state to hire this position, which, which started earlier this year. And I can't tell you how many meetings <laughs> NASW had been in with the Department of Public Instruction in order to make this happen. It was it's a really big deal. There was a there is a um, state level psychologist uh, consultant position. There's a state level counselor consultant position, but there was not a 
school social work uh, consultant position. So that person, again, was hired earlier this year. And uh, we were just thrilled that that all of our advocacy work around that came to fruition. Something that uh, we've been working on the last few legislative sessions is to increase legislative funding for additional school social workers statewide. The recommended ratio of school social workers nationally to students is one, one social worker per 250 students. In North Carolina, there's one social worker to every 1,400 students. And the legislature is aware of that. And we will continue to push uh, for the increase in educational uh, funding around hiring more school social workers. Um, we have never stopped um, advocating for social workers um, within the healthcare system. And when most folks think about social workers in healthcare, they do think about clinical social workers, but a lot of the positions in healthcare are not clinical. They are care coordinators, case managers. And so I think it was three years ago, NASW North Carolina was brought to the table with the Department of Health and Human Services when uh, when the legislation in 2015 passed for Medicaid transformation. So DHHS reached out to us to uh, bring us to the behavioral health table. And so we were able to advocate for social workers being included and hired in as we are transitioning to this Medicaid transformation. As we all know, that's been put on hold because we did not have a state budget last year, as well as being in the middle of this pandemic. So Medicaid transformation, um, there was a bill passed last week that Medicaid transformation is supposed to start by July 1 of next year. So um, again, making sure that social workers are at the table and, and hired as care coordinators in this work. And then uh, finally, as we work hard to articulate to anyone who will listen that social workers belong everywhere. So not uh, not just in clinical settings, but macro political social work. We have uh, two social workers who are currently um, in the House of Representatives in, in North Carolina and one other who is running for office. So social workers belong everywhere and NASW North Carolina works hard to advocate to make sure social workers are seen as, as Roger says, as as that um, that tool that can be inserted anywhere um, as the um, what did you call it? The um, Swiss Army knife. Uh, what's the knife? Swiss Army Swiss Army knife. Thank you. Yes, and we continue to advocate that social workers should be at at all of the tables and not. Um, just as a token and not just as a, 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 yes, we've got a social worker who's on our board or a social worker, but somebody who's really there to help with the decision making. So, and we do that by recommending to the governor uh, uh, appointments to boards and commissions. So we, um, I think we have about 10 to 15 I think it's about 13 this year, social workers who've been appointed to boards and commissions throughout the state. And the governor issued an executive order uh, two weeks ago to uh, put together a racial equity task force in the criminal justice system. And we did make a recommendation for three social workers to serve on that task force as well. So we work to make sure the social work voice is, is everywhere. And it, it's not just clinical. It's the importance of community organizing, the importance of macros, the importance of uh, social workers in every area of practice. There are 23 BSW programs in North Carolina, and uh, BSW is not a clinical degree. So we work hard to ensure that social workers have jobs everywhere. 
You know, Valerie, that's fantastic. I, I really love that you mentioned that social workers are everywhere. We can be everywhere. We should be everywhere. And, and you know, from elected officials to executive leadership to academia, we are we are definitely threaded in or should be threaded in all aspects of society. Um, one individual I want to give a shout out to is somebody you're probably very familiar with. Uh, Drew and I had the chance to interview him uh, when we had our our, our previous podcast. Um, the helping hands of our community is Representative Greg Meyer, and he gave us so much good information. He was such a great guest to have on. Um, perhaps we can get him on sometime in the near future, Drew, but uh, Representative Greg Meyer is a social worker. He's an advocate, and he has a heart for helping our communities thrive. Yes, he is amazing. And we truly would not be able to do a lot of the work that we do without having him in office, as well as Representative Sidney Batch and then Representative Marianne Black from the Durham area, unfortunately passed away back in March. All three of them were incredible advocates for the social work profession throughout the last few years. Um, and it, it, Greg Meyer has been an incredible advocate for the social work profession. So we need more social workers to run for elected positions. They um, understand communities. They understand um, the importance of uh, funding for all of our uh, programs. So it's it's really important for social workers to run for elected office. It's really hard, but uh, we will um, continue to advocate and support any social worker who who runs for elected office because we we need your voice. We need you there. Awesome. Yeah. And I also really appreciate the way that you had spoken about all the different practice areas in which you were engaged in in advocacy and policymaking, particularly in school social work. That's a soft spot for me, for sure, as someone who's worked in schools a lot um, and knows uh, quite a, how challenging it can be sometimes when those ratios get so high for school social workers and how a lot of times school social workers are the first, um, you know, one of the first professions to be cut from a budget when uh, hard times come on budgets. And so uh, really appreciating your advocacy there. So I'm going to actually turn this over now to Roger, who um, always likes to end our episodes with some awesome questions about uh, music and culture. So Roger, take it away. So Valerie, I, I, I end up asking questions related to 90s, 80s and 90s uh, pop culture. I'm a 90s, uh, 90s, 90s child. So I wanted to ask, I'm always intrigued about um, other individuals' concept of 90s and how perhaps either television or movies or even music from the 80s and 90s influence their, you know, sort of where they are now. So what what would you say would be maybe an influential type of a movie or even song that you can recall that that sort of kind of influenced where you are right now? Oh my goodness, that's such a deep question. <laughs> I know, I got deep um, on that so one. So yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, middle school, high school, and college all in the 90s. So it's hard to pick a specific um, pop culture reference. You know, um, I'm not going to lie that, you know, I spent high school watching Beverly Hills 90210. But now I reflect on that lifestyle and think, no, that's about as far away from the social work profession as you can get. Um, I never really appreciated the band Nirvana until a after uh, Kurt Cobain 
um, died by suicide. And um, so I think it was actually later, later in life that I became um, really interested in their work and, and their songs. Um, I can't, uh, I can't not do a shout out to, um, there was some early Paula Abdul, uh, songs. My very first CD was a Paula Abdul CD. Um, so I have to do a shout out to her. Um, yeah, that's really hard. That's a really hard question because there, you know, back before cell phones and smartphones and TikTok and, uh, Facebook, that's what you did. You listened to the radio and you watched TV and you watched TV with your friends and called them on the phone until, um, until they would pick up the phone because there was the, um, the busy signal. Um, so that's what I remember about the nineties, um, uh, and nineties pop culture. Yeah. I think, um, unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I also lived in Kentucky and went through a, um, country music, <laughs> went through a country music phase. So, um, I'm, I'm over that phase now, uh, but my brother still likes to poke some fun at me when we, when we hear some popular country music from the nineties. See, I think the nineties scan, like scans from country to Paul Abdul, all the way to Nirvana. And you just hit all three gamuts. So that's awesome. That's what the nineties is. It's just this big sort of cluster of angst and, and, uh, and poppy, you know, with Paul Abdul and twang with country. So I appreciate you sharing that with us, but, yep. um, yeah, Nirvana's got to be uh, yeah, one of my just top. Just about just uh, uh, yeah, everything. You just ranged from everything, and I think that was the the fun part of growing up in the '90s is you could listen to everything and see everything and watch MTV before it got super crazy. And that's where that's where you got all your pop culture stuff. Well, Verily, we appreciate you, and we definitely uh, had so much fun with you today. It was so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate all of the work that you both are doing uh, to really highlight the social work profession. This is really important work that you do. So I'm honored and thank you for having me. And again, that was Valerie Arndt, Executive Director of NASW North Carolina. You can follow the work of NASW North Carolina um, on Twitter at NASWNC, and you can follow Valerie's work at V-L-A-R-E-N-D-T. Thanks for listening. And what a great interview we just had with Valerie. It is an appropriate time to talk about the importance of advocacy and legislative action as a necessary means to bring about the common good this week, in particular as we remember the life and legacy of Representative John Lewis from right here where I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Like many of you, I watched this past weekend as he crossed the Emmon Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama for the last time. I was reminded of some of Representative Lewis's words, and I'll share them with you today. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and to get into good trouble, necessary trouble. May we, like Representative Lewis, have the courage to know when to make good trouble in order to bring about a more peaceful and just world.
So we're really excited about today's guest. Uh, this individual is somebody who is an advocate and a champion for mental health, uh, not only here in our community, but nationwide. I'm so glad that to have Kathy Rogers on board today. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Kathy Rogers. Kathy Rogers is the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Central Carolinas. She has more than 20 years of experience as a nonprofit executive, including 12 years as Executive Director for United Way of Henry County in Martinsville in Virginia. Kathy, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thanks so much, Roger. I'm really um, excited to be here with you today. So I know that we've we've been connected for the past several years, uh, ever since you started mm -hmm. as the executive director uh, for Mental Health America, and uh, you've just done so much. You and, and your group there, um, folks at Mental Health America, are just incredible champions. And so uh, we, we definitely want our listeners to know a little bit about what's going on, um, the mission of Mental, uh, Mental Health America. So to start off, can you tell us uh, about your work? Describe your work and the mission of Mental Health America of Central Carolinas. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, um, Mental Health America, Central Carolinas, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that we've been around in some shape or form since 1933. Um, we had the unfortunate name of the Mecklenburg Hygiene Society at one, Mental Hygiene Society at one time. So I am glad that we uh, have changed our name. Uh, but our mission is centered around providing help, offering hope, and promoting mental wellness in Mecklenburg and Cabarrus counties. And we do this through uh, three broad areas. Uh, one is advocacy. And our advocacy work is um, not only working with our legislators and community leaders to uh, improve the systems around mental health, but also to help families and individuals to be their own best advocates when they're um, uh, working for improved mental health services. Uh, we also do a lot of education programming. Uh, central to our vision is uh, to eliminate the stigma that continues to surround mental health. And a key part of that is education and normalizing the conversation. We teach uh, QPR, which stands for Question, Persuade, Refer. It is a 90 to two-hour class focused on suicide prevention. And we teach an eight-hour class called Mental Health First Aid. Uh, we teach several versions of that. We teach it for uh, adults, for adults who are working with youth, for public safety uh, workers, uh, veterans, uh, seniors. So we teach several versions of that class. Uh, a job in the community, especially now during COVID-19, you know, so you know, a couple of things that I jotted down that, that, uh, that you said, um, you know, helping individuals who are, are, are challenged with feeling isolated, uh, loneliness, et cetera, uh, particularly now seems even more important to hone in on during COVID-19. Um, we're living in social isolation, social distancing, um, quarantining, et cetera, and uh, can increase an individual sense of anxiety, can increase uh, even, you know, depression. So what are some of the things that, that Mental Health America of Central Carolina is, what, what are y'all doing to counter some of this that's going on right now? Well, you know, you're exactly right, Roger. Those are some of the things keeping me up at night. Um, I know I've used the word, and we probably all have unprecedented a lot, but 
you know, these truly are unprecedented times. And I think it worries all of us because we don't have a lack of, we don't have certainty in our, in our lives right now, which increases everyone's fears and anxiety. Um, and you're right. Those who are already living in loneliness and isolation, and that just, that doesn't just include, um, people who are living with a mental health diagnosis, but it also includes seniors, um, who are probably more isolated now. Um, I worry about them and their, uh, ongoing mental health. But I know that so many of the folks that we work with in our Compeer program, the thing that really, uh, makes me a little bit sad is we have some who were just really making such good progress. They were um, leaving their house and, and doing things they never thought they'd be doing because of their compeer friendship that they had. And because of COVID-19, now they're not able to do that. So with those um, people who are now having to self-isolate, we're trying to do everything that we can to stay connected to them. Um, we can't, uh, of course, our friendship matches can't be face-to-face doing things, but they can call them and do some things virtually. Uh, we're also doing virtual uh, compeer support groups. Um, I know that our compeer coordinator is working on doing some um, Zoom online games where they can get together and play different games. So, uh trying to connect people in that way. And the same is true for um, our families that we work with. Um, Our family partners continue to help uh, families, uh, whether it's uh, with social service issues or um, educational issues or just parenting issues. We teach a lot of triple P uh, positive parenting classes. We continue to do that in a virtual way, whether we're dealing, uh, working with that family on the phone, or we're doing like everyone else. We're doing a lot of Zoom uh, meetings. Um, our families, we used to do monthly support groups, and they asked uh, that we um, do it weekly. So we are doing weekly support groups. Um, my biggest concern right now is um, our efforts to engage youth hasn't been quite as robust as we would like it to be. And maybe now that school is winding down, we'll be able to get youth uh, engaged more virtually because I just feel like right now they're just so um, overwhelmed with school and the parent, you know, maybe they're having to share uh, electronic devices with their parents. So, so there are those issues. So, um, and then with regards to our suicide prevention classes, um, we are teaching those virtually. A lot of the, um, folks that, um, sanctioned these classes had never, at first weren't allowing us to do it virtually, but now are finding that it's a necessity. We're doing weekly public um, QPR classes. We're teaching QPR classes right now for CMS employees. Those are Charlotte Mecklenburg School employees, uh, particularly principals and other leaders in the school system. Uh, We're doing some work with uh, workplace campaigns. Um, And then we've just gotten notice from the National Council for Behavioral Health that we'll be able to start teaching mental health first aid virtually very soon. So we're looking forward to being able to offer that as well. 
Incredible. I mean, you, it's even though COVID-19 has consumed our lives right now and definitely impacted the way agencies and, and organizations, uh, um, how they how they function right and how programs are executed yeah. in the community y'all are still moving forward and i appreciate that and i know you you're also working in the community through the web series so you're having these uh oh, yes. you know, virtual dialogues for community members to 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 listen to and uh and i've appreciated um you know the efforts on in you know on y'all's end with that as well yeah we're um we're doing mental health matters every tuesday afternoon um, we're planning, uh, very soon on doing another media training. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people realize we did our first media training in late 2018. Uh, WSOC came to that training and as men, I hope you've seen their focus on mental health has just been incredible. Um, after coming to our training, they required every employee to take QPR and a mental health 101 that we do. Um, we talked to them about um, how we report on mental health and suicide. Um, they have become very strong advocates for um, sharing mental health resources and information out in the community. So we're hoping to do that very soon as well and do it virtually with our other local media outlets. We think that's so important to Again, eliminating the stigma, how we talk about mental health is so important. And um, being in the middle of a pandemic shouldn't keep us from continuing that conversation. Kathy, I love how you talk about the importance of being just on top of this during this pandemic. And you also spoke about the importance of prevention work. And you mentioned prevention mm -hmm. programs like Triple P, uh, Mental Health First Aid, mm -hmm. and some of these other ones. But I think that, you know, can you help some of our listeners who maybe are not so immersed in the mental health field as you and, and Roger and I are, but why is it so important to be thinking about prevention with mental health when we sometimes think of mental health as, you know, having somebody seek treatment after the fact? So that's a great question because uh, one uh, thing that we like to focus on is a it's a tagline that our uh, national affiliate has come up with, but we totally embrace it. And it's called B4 Stage 4, hashtag B4 Stage 4. Because any other time, you if you had a cancer diagnosis, you would not wait until you were in stage 4 cancer before you would treat that. Uh, we know that one in five in our community and across the country are dealing with a mental health diagnosis. And I would say during this current environment we're living in that many of us are struggling with anxiety and depression. And so it's we think for quality of life, it's so important to recognize at an early age when someone needs uh, therapy or um, some mental health supports because, you know, people can get better. We may not, uh, we may continue to live with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or other diagnoses, but we can learn to cope with that in various ways. So it's so important. And again, stigma plays such a role in that. Um, if, if I am a parent and I'm worried about my child being labeled a certain way, you know, I may hesitate to get the help I need or my child needs. But we know that 
a mental health diagnosis will often manifest itself by the age of 14, but it could be into the 20s or later before uh, someone will get the help that they need. And and sometimes um, it, they may end their life or um, do something totally drastic before they get that help. And And just think of the years of suffering that people have as well. You know, Kathy, I want to go back to real quick. You had mentioned some work that y'all are doing with the media and sort of incorporating the media. Mm-hmm. And I was going to, I was going to let Drew know that maybe a future podcast, Drew, can be, uh, how the media, how we can utilize the news media, uh, to be an ally for mental health awareness. So maybe we can connect with somebody in the media and have them on the podcast, Drew. What do you think? You know, I think that sounds like a great idea. And, you know, what you're speaking to, too, with this media question is really about the sort of macro and societal factors, the messages that come through. Um, And one question that I really wanted to ask Kathy, too, as we were preparing for this interview is on things like legislative priorities and ways that we can think about um, how legislation can promote mental wellness in our community. So what should we be thinking about for mental health at the state and national levels in terms of legislative priorities? I I think on the state level, expanding health insurance for all would be very important because what what we had, we always knew there was disparity in in health care, but I think that COVID-19 has just um, really uh, shown a spotlight on that even more so that we have disparities of people with health care without um, just people who already are vulnerable, who are struggling. Um, and then uh, one thing that we have seen that we feel is important right now to um, uh, not lose sight of is the importance of telehealth. Um, it's it's being used a lot right now because of um, social distancing guidelines. Well, I like to say physical distancing, not social distancing. But it's a tool that we shouldn't uh, lose sight of when we come out of this. Um, and oftentimes providers get paid less when they do things through teletherapy. And and so we feel like this is a legislative issue we should uh, focus on right now. We need to continue to push parity between mental health and physical health, because even though over 10 years ago the parity law was passed, it still doesn't exist really. Um, you often pay a higher copay for uh, mental health visits. Uh, you're probably limited to the number of visits you can have. Um, so we, we really do need to do some education with our legislators and um Uh, Cody Kinsley from the Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina was on Mental Health Matters a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, he talked about the importance of connecting with our local leaders, those that are in our communities. So a big part of what our work is and what we're um, continuing to work on is is a lot of times they don't know the, um, the many barriers and systemic struggles that people have, whether it's um, uh, parity, uh, just access to care. Um, we're, we're working with a father right now whose um, son attempted suicide, and because of his age, he, he's having a difficult time communicating with the hospital, and, you know, now he's trying to get, you know, guardianship, but, you know, those are, you're already 
so hurt and distraught about your child and then you can't um, communicate with their medical provider because of um, HIPAA laws and even though you're that child's parent. Um, so uh, involuntary commitment. I mean, there's just so, uh, so many issues we need to be focused on. But um, I, I think that right now is it, I, I was on a call one day and someone said, really, we shouldn't be talking to our legislators right now because all they're focused on is COVID-19. But to me, this is an important time for us to be um, talking about mental health. Patty Murray, who's in the U.S. Senate uh, and is on the HELP Committee, which stands for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, you know, they're really urging the administration to, you know, fund mental health and suicide prevention for people who are coping with the ramifications of this COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I really do worry about our healthcare providers who are on the front lines, teachers, you know, others whose way of working and being has just been turned upside down. You know, I know I, that I, was I, a long drawn out answer. But, no, I yeah. think that's a great answer. And I think you're, I mean, I would, I would say that both Drew and I agree with you in the sense of if right now it's actually um, very important that that we talk to our representatives, you know, our uh, folks in the legislation about what can be done in regards to mental wellness, particularly because we are experiencing this pandemic right now and how it's impacting everyone from children to adolescents to uh, parents, adults, older adults. It's just, yeah. it, there's nobody who is not impacted by this right now. And um, individuals' yeah. mental wellness is what should also be at the forefront of of uh, of support, you know, from all levels. And so, yeah, my fear exactly. is that there, there will be budget yeah. cuts and that'll impact uh, the mental wellness yes. of, of our community. Yes, I agree. And um, because you know that mental health typically is underfunded. And I hope that that won't be the case. Um, we know, you know, after any kind of disaster, we know there are mental health needs. And, and just because this one is drawn out and isn't as, you know, visible, you know, you don't see a lot of trees down or flooding and, and things like that, it is a disaster. And, um, so we need to put funding to it and not just focus on the physical health, but the mental health as well. You know, our legislators can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I think we yeah. can, we can put yeah. on both. You're right. This is a community and a societal disaster. You're not, you're right. It's not unlike a natural yeah. disaster where we would see, you know, in a hurricane, we would see down trees, down power lines, uh, et cetera. Um, it, you know, our lives are impacted yeah. that way. But uh, but this is this is this goes on a deeper level, and um, you know we encourage yeah. our listeners to uh, reach out to um, you know your your local, state, um, and and national represent representatives, uh, especially because mental mental health, mental wellness impacts all of us, and it's not just for one yeah. person; it's for everybody. Um, yeah, and, and, and I, we cannot and emphasize that. We focus on the mental wellness. Yes. We all need to be focused on that. Right. So, so Kathy, you've already mentioned some of the creative responses Mental Health America of Central Carolina is, 
is incorporating to promote mental wellness during social distancing. What are you seeing other organizations do right? What are they doing right now to promote mental wellness during COVID-19? Well, as we think about funding, I know that conversation I've, I've had with funders is they really do want to help. Um, we have gotten two COVID-19 um, grants, one to help us increase capacity in Cabarrus County, and one to help us here in Mecklenburg County. And I think that um, they'll continue to be uh, funding for that. Again, that goes back. There is a focus on mental health, and we just need to keep that focus there. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of nonprofits get creative in how they serve the community. I know, Roger, you and I are on the Youth City Family Zone. Mm-hmm. And those kind of neighborhood initiatives and place uh, focuses on places in our communities, um, those are so important right now because the last call I was on, it was so inspiring to hear all the partners in that uh, family, youth city family zone who have already been coming together to pool resources to help um get the word out about food banks and different uh, nonprofits addressing food insecurity, nonprofits who are addressing uh, financial assistance. Um, And then the uh, UNC Charlotte, I think John Nance is working on the U-City Family Zone and with students and to provide mental health resources uh, to the community. And we'll certainly continue to be a part of that. So I think collaboration, whether you're a mental health organization or just uh, an individual organization in the community is always important, but especially in a, at a time like this. Absolutely right, Kathy. I'm glad you mentioned the U-City Family Zone. Uh, Drew, maybe that's actually uh, a great opportunity for us to reach out to them to see the, the work that mm-hmm. they're doing, um, which is probably similar to a lot of other organizations around the nation. But you know, with the U City Family Zone for listeners who aren't aware, definitely encourage y'all to check them out, ucityfamilyzone.com. Um, but it's a collective uh, group of individuals, uh, organizations that are invested in increasing social capital here in the, in the community, in the university uh, city uh, zone. And uh, a lot of great work is being done. A lot of wonderful individuals in that group, hoping that we can get them on the podcast as well. So yeah. So thank you for sharing that information right there. Um, I'm Kathy, I really, again, we encourage listeners yeah. to reach out to uh, nonprofits or organizations that are trying their best right now to um, accommodate the community needs, particularly during COVID-19. So um, as we move forward here, Kathy, can you share some resources with our listeners who want to learn more about your work? Um, Sure. But, you know, one point I want to make real quick, if I can, is that I hope that none of us lose sight of the valuable lessons that we've learned. Um, I'm challenging my um, staff to let's think about the lessons that we've learned during this time, because we're doing things that we never would have done before. And I think some of those things we need to continue to do because, um, it remove by doing some things virtually. It removes the barriers of transportation. Um, a lot of folks, hopefully, if they can't get to one of our support groups, they can get to a library or they have the the capacity at home to log in uh, to a support group virtually. Um, I'm 
bear, uh, we don't have geographic barriers with regards to our education, our courses that we're teaching right now. You can be out in California if you want to log into our QPR class that's free. Um, we, we'd love to have you, but we know there are neighboring counties that we need to be serving, and this might be a way for us to expand some of our services to Union County, Stanley, Stanley, Gaston. So I just wanted to throw that out there, that we all need to take the good things that are working from this and not let go of those as we come out of this. And and so that's some of the resources that we'll continue to provide. But um, if people want to visit our website at mhacentralcarolinas.org, uh, one thing, if people are concerned about their mental health, we have online screening tools um, that uh, people can take uh, in the comfort of, and privacy of your own home. Um, we have seen a spike of people taking the anxiety assessment and getting higher uh, scores, uh, moderate to severe anxiety from that. Um, during this time. So we know there are a lot of people um, who are struggling with anxiety, and um, but there are a lot of uh, screening tools on there. We have a, a provider directory. If you're looking for a provider in the community, you can search by diagnosis. You can search by zip code. Um, you can search by the type of insurance they take. Um, so that's on our website as well. And then if you go to our events tab, you'll be able to find the different trainings that we're offering, um, the mental health matters that we're doing weekly, and you can find more about our support groups that we're offering as well. Kathy, thanks for mentioning the part of that there is something about this challenge, this challenging time that we're experiencing, um, where we can see some of the some of our strengths, some of the things that are, we are that we are doing right now that we perhaps didn't think we could do prior to this, um, whether it's uh, communicating or or working together virtually, which I know can be challenging at times as well. But uh, but I, I do feel like we are stepping up. You know, we're stepping up in a different way. Uh, we are seeing others really find strengths that maybe perhaps they knew was there, maybe it was dormant, and now those strengths are really blossoming and coming out. So I really appreciate you shining mm -hmm. that light a little bit because right now mm -hmm. it can be very grim. You know, it can be very grim with uh, the social yeah. distancing and uh, which can cause social isolation. And just the fact that you said that um, really puts, puts things in perspective. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, you're welcome. So Kathy, it was so great to have you on the podcast today. Um, you have shared so much information with us, uh, so much information for our listeners to really, you know, chew on and marinate for a little bit and, and hopefully think about what are ways that they can uh, impact their community, impact society um, during COVID-19. And, um, and, and we can do that in, in, in many fashions, you know, definitely encourage uh, listeners to reach out to state uh, local, state, and national representatives to see how they can be involved and how they can help change the narrative right now, um, you know, and and uh, and and really make an impact in that way. So, before we before we kind of move towards the end of this podcast here, Drew and and our other co-host Carrie, Dr. Carrie Revens, uh, they they like to pick on me a little bit, Kathy, because I'm somewhat of a '90s baby, right? I grew up in the '90s, '80s, '90s. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, Gen X Raj You're is um, <laughs> Gen X Raj is is this uh, maybe a character that we're going to have on here that's going to come out during the podcast. But 
movies, eighties <clears throat> and nineties movies. What what what's what would you say is one of the your most favorite eighties or nineties movies? Oh gosh, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot. So I can tell you some of my one of my favorite. It didn't come out in the eighties or nineties. Let's see, Top Gun. Oh, that's a, that definitely eighties. Oh, that's who. Yep. Who doesn't know? That's they're remaking <laughs> Top Gun now. That is gonna. I think yeah, they're. Yeah, uh, that was a good one. Big Tom yeah, Cruise fan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I, it struck me that um, so many advertisers use the Tom Cruise from the um, other movie where he's in his, you know, Risk, risky in business. His yeah. and, um, risky, risky business. business. Yeah. But I, I doubt my daughters have watched Risky Business. They're probably like, what? What is this person doing? Why are they? <laughs> so that was a good one too. That was a great one. Well, thanks for yeah, sharing. Roger, I think this is the point. I think this is the point where we need to uh, cue in the Highway to the Danger Zone music. You think we can get the uh, the rights for that one? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we could uh, get Kenny Loggins on board with that, but yeah, we could try. Oh, so. Yeah, that's good. That would be good. Hey, I did awesome. want to share something that I did with my staff last week was I asked them to tell me the number one song on their 16th birthday. And I created a Spotify playlist (laughs) and shared it with everybody, the staff. So we have our 16th birthday playlist. That was kind of fun to do. Mine was You're No Good by Linda Ronstadt. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I think, oh, mine, I believe was, uh, mm-hmm. nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor. Okay. Yeah, there we go. And we knew our youngest employee, we knew which one was his cause it was billionaire. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was fun. That was fun. Oh, that is good. That cause is a lot good. of times the, the number one song didn't reflect that person's um, taste in music. <laughs> well, you know the best the best music came out of the nineties, so oh really yeah <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it yeah, thank you guys i pre I enjoyed it really did and again, that was Kathy Rogers, executive director, of Mental Health America of Central Carolinas. You can follow the work of Mental Health America of Central Carolinas on Twitter at m h a of c c And you can follow Kathy at RogersK214. Thank you for listening. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Spark dialogue with us on Twitter. You'll find us at the handle at Common Good Hour. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.